Okay, May 40 here. So I used to always think that uh, being a victim was bad, that everyone should try to transcend any sense of victimhood. And then I realized that along with so many of my other beliefs that uh, victimhood is just inherent in being human, right? There's no way that you can go through life without times feeling like a victim. And if you have an in-group identity, I mean, even if you're just a Dallas Cowboys fan, you're going to have a sense of victimhood. If you're Jewish and you identify with being Jewish, you're going to have a sense of victimhood. If you're Christian, you're going to have a sense of victimhood. If you're Muslim, you're going to have a sense of victimhood. If you're gay, you're going to have a sense of victimhood. If you're Japanese or Australian or English or French or German or Russian, you're going to have a sense of victimhood. So I think the real question is how much victimhood serves you, right? Does it serve you turning up the dial to 10 out of 10 on the victimhood scale? Or in my opinion, most of us are better suited cruising along at perhaps no more than a 2 or 3 in out of a 1 to 10 scale in, in the victimhood valence game, right, in the intensity game. So there are certainly situations that, that call for extreme exertion and the more victimhood you feel then perhaps the, the more energy you can muster for that all right let's turn into the king of victimhood tucker carlson good evening and welcome to tucker carlson tonight as we reported on friday joe biden was suffering from such severe dementia during the 2020 presidential campaign that his wife and his staff medicated him before his public appearances we're not guessing about that. We spoke directly to an eyewitness who saw it happen multiple times. That means that everyone around Joe Biden has known perfectly well for more than three years that he is incapable of serving as president. And yet knowing that, they foisted him on the country anyway. Why did they do that? Well, of course, to carry out a task, to carry out the revolution, to end the historic protections of free speech and self-defense in the United States, to hobble domestic energy production, to scramble gender roles until no one can think clearly and then hook the middle class on federal handouts. That was his job. Like certain species of marsupials, Joe Biden's task was to do one big thing, in his case, change the country forever, and then disappear. We've reached the disappearing part right about now. Democrats would like Joe Biden gone soon. He's no longer useful to them. He's just embarrassing. He shakes hands with thin air. He compliments the Holocaust on state trips to Israel. Can't do that. So not surprisingly, almost 70% of Democratic voters don't want Joe Biden to run again. So you can be certain that he won't. No matter what his staff is claiming now, they don't want to be relegated to lame duck status. So they're pretending otherwise. But no matter what they say, you will never hear another word from Joe Biden after January of 2025, assuming he makes it that long. So the question really is, who replaces Joe Biden? The scramble begins now. Now, it's early enough that we can't really say, we can't say it all, in fact, the only thing we can say is which candidates seem to believe they could be the next Democratic nominee. And so far, it is an amazing lineup that reveals a lot about the state of the Democratic Party 2022. First on the list, believe it or not, is the governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker. Pritzker is an inherited money dolt. He's impressed on a single person who knows him, but he yet spent more than $171 million of his family's money to get a job that he does not seem to enjoy and certainly isn't very good at. J.B. Prisker is one of the last people on earth who be running, should be running anything, and yet somehow he's convinced himself he's going to be the next president. Here's J.B. Pritzker in New Hampshire in June. 
The Republican game plan is to blame the hardships imposed by a deadly global pandemic on those who were following facts and science. They want to cast obvious solutions to everyday problems as something exotic or woke. They're hoping, as the old story goes, that no one is willing to say that their emperor has no clothes. Well, New Hampshire, I'm here to tell you the GOP is naked and afraid. <laughs> Imagine the consultant who convinced J.B. Pritzker to leave his collapsing state and head to New Hampshire because, really, you could be president, J.B. <laughs> so he's running. Who else is running? Well, if you want to know the answer to that, look around and ask yourself which elected Democrats are attacking Ron DeSantis. He's the candidate they think, many of them believe, they will face. So who's attacking Ron DeSantis? Well, here's California Governor Gavin Newsom. He's got a new ad in Florida. Watch. So let's talk about what's going on in America. Freedom, it's under attack in your state. Your Republican leaders, they're banning books, making it harder to vote restricting speech in classrooms, even criminalizing women and doctors. I urge all of you living in Florida to join the fight or join us in California, where we still believe in freedom, freedom of speech, freedom to choose, freedom from hate, and the freedom to love. Come join us in California. <laughs> Leave Florida. He's got some huevos. You got to give him that. Gavin Newsom then gave a television interview, not saying he's running for president, but suggesting that maybe you speculate about it. Watch. You know that that image of you walking to the White House got a lot of attention. Uh, and we, you know that you're not, you're not going to announce your presidential run on this show unless you want to and really make news. But we, we know that, that you've said in every single possible way that you're not running for president. I'm going to say it in a foreign language. I mean, so maybe someone pays attention. He's walking outside the White House without his jacket on, flexing a little bit, and those teeth. Where did he get those teeth? We'd like to know the man who installed them. So those are the two most prominent people as of tonight who apparently believe they can replace Joe Biden. That would be the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, and the governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker. Now, if you're not laughing right now, you're dead inside. Not least because of the way they look. And yes, appearance not simply matters to the Democratic Party. It is determinative. That party has spent the last decade telling us that white men are evil. White men must be removed from positions of leadership, except within their party, where white men continue to run everything. What does that remind you of? It's kind of like flying private to the global warming summit or going maskless as you enforce COVID mandates, both of which J.B. Pritzker and Gavin Newsom have done. So they passed the hypocrisy test already. But as long as the anti-white party is going to ignore highly qualified leaders of color like Stacey Abrams or Tierra Mack of Rhode Island, and instead continuing to run white men, you think they could at least pick non-ridiculous white men, but no. Instead, they are getting behind the two guys who run the most dysfunctional states out of 50. How do we know that? By what people do. Ignore what people say. Be more like your dog. Watch actions. Ignore words. More people are emigrating from California, which is to say fleeing from California, than from any other state in the country. And some of them are literally running to Mexico in the middle of a drug war in search of a better life. <laughs> and they're getting it. That's the thing. Californians now pay more income tax than any other state. And yet there's more poverty in California than any other state. California leads the nation in homelessness. They are everywhere. 
Check an overpass in L.A. County. People living under it, American citizens. In the last two years, murders in L.A. went up by 35%. Already in the first half of this year, homicides in Los Angeles have set a 15-year record. You're going to run on that, Gavin Newsom? They're robbing trains in your state like it's 1880. And then there's Illinois. And we don't want to be mean. Both are great states. Nice people, the ones who haven't yet moved to Florida. It's about four of them left. Illinois ranks third in net migration. New York's in the middle between California and Illinois. The Chicago-Naperville area lost 107,000 people just last year. That's one of the highest losses for any metropolitan region in the United States. L.A. and San Francisco also rank near the top of that list. So again, if you want to judge someone's success, ask yourself, are people moving to the place that person governs, or are they running at high speed in the other direction? Illinois and California are in the second category. According to the Illinois Policy Institute, Illinois loses a resident every four minutes. Now, how many people is that? Well, over a year, that's the equivalent of losing the entire city of Springfield, which is the capital of Illinois. How many are going to Florida? Well, most of them. One of the reasons that Illinois isn't safe anymore is because people with jobs are leaving. As of July 10th, year-to-date total crimes in the city of Chicago are up 34% year over year. Now, who's responsible for this? Hmm, who's running it? Well, J.B. Pritzker is running it. And everyone who lives there, who still lives there, who's too tied to get out or can't afford to flee to Broward County, is mad about it. And that's why every time J.B. Pritzker goes outside sweating profusely, he gets yelled at. Watch. The crowd is booing for Governor Pritzker here. the mascot outside. You can just imagine him going back to his box and saying to his, hey, what were they saying? Oh, they love you, governor. They love you. <laughs> but they don't. And they shouldn't. Under J.B. Prisker, Illinois has become much poorer, much more dangerous, and much less free. The violent crime rate in Chicago has increased by nearly 40%. Again, his state. So what has he done about that? How many lives has he saved? No. You know the real problems of J.D. Pritzker? It's law-abiding people in Indiana who own guns. It's your fault. Watch. It is devastating that a celebration of America was ripped apart by our uniquely American plague. A day dedicated to freedom has put into stark relief the one freedom we as a nation refuse to uphold, the freedom of our fellow citizens to live without the daily fear of gun violence. It's the 4th of July, a day for reflection on our freedoms. Our founders carried muskets, not assault weapons. And I don't think a single one of them would have said that you have a constitutional right to an assault weapon with a high-capacity magazine. Ooh, haranguing the public. People who've done literally nothing wrong except try to protect their own homes from the criminals that J.D. Pritzker has loosed on the state of Illinois. No wonder they're screaming at him. He doesn't punish criminals. He attacks law-abiding citizens instead. And that's a theme with Pritzker. He's the one who imposed a mask mandate on schools in the state 
based on, on, oh, precisely zero scientific evidence. None. And parents understood it. Their kids were being destroyed by this. So here's how parents in Naperville reacted earlier this year. Watch. Why? Why are you continuing to enforce a mandate that has been ruled null and void? This type of evil is exactly what the law was intending to constrain, yet you continue to perpetrate this evil. The judge's words, not mine. Where's our family choice? You want your kids to wear masks? Then give them masks. You want your kids to take their masks off? Then take their masks off. It really is that simple. You have harmed her so much with this. Everybody talks about everybody's got to be safe. Everybody's got to have everything. And we've left so many children behind. She was going to be able to see other kids' smiles. The kids would be able to understand her. And she would stop being picked on because they could not understand her through her mask. Because her speech has been delayed even more than her special needs. I will never forgive myself for not fighting more. I feel that I have failed her for not fighting more. So you'd think if you'd inherited as much money as J.B. Pritzker has, billions, you would need to listen to the teachers' unions. You fund your own campaigns. Why do you care what the teachers' unions think? Which ironically are the national focus of anti-children policies. Find anybody in America who dislikes children as thoroughly and intensely as the teachers' unions do. And that person should be in jail. But J.D. Pritzker not only listens to the teachers' unions, he is their slave. So once you start thinking irrationally, and once science has no bearing whatsoever on your public health policy, God knows where you're going to wind up. In J.D. Pritzker's case, he banned families from stepping on boats because it was dangerous. Watch. It is restricted to two people per boat. It's not, you can't have five people or ten people uh, in a boat. So if it is a family of four or five, like husband, wife, and kids, they're going to have to pick two of them at a time. They would, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hey, Grace Ball, where did you get the right to tell me how many people can come on my boat? Nobody asked that question. Well, really? It's on the boat or on the dock. Nobody said anything. And so G.B. Pritzker kept going, listing with consultants. They love you. But nothing changes the bottom line fact. Gavin Newsom and G.B. Pritzker run the dirtiest, most dangerous states in the country with the worst cities. Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, great places, all, all places that have been destroyed. And the basis of that record of destruction, they become convinced they run the country. They need to be president. Now, if that's not hilarious, what is? These are ridiculous people. Newsom looks like an ad for a plastic surgery clinic. Oh, look at the teeth. J.B. Pritzker can barely walk to the podium. So again, who's the consultant who managed to keep a straight face while telling J.B. Pritzker he could be president? We'd love that man's name. People love you, J.B. You can do it. <laughs> Jason Woodlock is the host of Fearless. He joins us tonight. Jason, thanks so much for coming out. You should have gone, if you wanted to get rich, you should have gone into political consulting where you can find some inherited money mouth breather like J.D. Pritzker and just whisper in his ear that he could be president. Why didn't you do that? Look, what I should have gone into is television production. 
because that's what the Democratic Party is into right now, right. is production of TV shows. Look at their January 6th deal. I, I wish I had told you this beforehand when I knew you were going to talk about these two guys. But literally, this is a casting call. This is an episode of Cheers. Pritzker is Norm, and Gavin Newsom is Sam Malone. Exactly. Pritzker's job is to walk into the bar and make Sam Malone, Gavin Newsom, look Okay, we'll keep an eye on Tucker, see if he says anything interesting. I've got a bunch of rejoinders to what he was just saying. Number one, where did J.B. Pritzker get the right to tell people that they can only have two persons on a boat? Where did he get the right? He seized the right. And guess what? People, by and large, went along with him. Gavin Newsom, governor of California, the first governor to shut down a state. Right. Where did Gavin Newsom get the right to shut down the state? He seized the right and people by and large followed him. If Donald Trump had seized the initiative and acted much more like J.B. Pritzker and Gavin Newsom with regard to COVID, he would have been reelected easily. Right. People, generally speaking, wanted more COVID restrictions than what we got. Now, you don't. Because you're on the right and you reject the liberal hygienic approach to life. You've got a built-in you know, BS detector. You're sick of, of busybody liberals ordering you around, sticking their beak into your business and interfering and regulating and ordering you around. So people who, who are traditionalists, they hate this kind of messy government intervention. Right. But overall, polls consistently show people wanted more COVID regulation, more COVID governmental intervention, more COVID restrictions. Right. Politicians, by and large, were following what the public wanted. Right. The public led the way seeking restrictions, right, seeking government mandated social distancing. And generally speaking, the politicians followed the people. Right. It wasn't Gavin Newsom and J.B. Prisker, by and large, imposing restrictions on an unwilling public. Now, as for mask mandates, I don't have a strong opinion, but if you force me to come down on one side or another, I think, generally speaking, the mask mandates in, in an influenza epidemic are a good idea. Right. I may be wrong. I'm open to... Uh, changing my mind. I don't have terribly strong opinions. But yeah, I think generally speaking, liberals did better with the coronavirus than conservatives, right? Liberals by by nature, by, by history, have this hygienic approach to life. And that was more effective with regard to COVID than the, you know, don't tread on my freedoms approach of conservatives. This is where we need both left-wing and right-wing approaches to life. Uh, we all evolved certain knee-jerk, you know, biologically-based reactions to stimuli. And people on the right evolved certain reactions, such as a, a strong fear response to that which is foreign and different and uh, disfigured. People on the left have evolved certain biologically-based responses to life. And in some situations, the left-wing approach to life is more adaptive. Right? Adaptive means you will reproduce your offspring into the next generation. So 
Generally speaking, the left-wing liberal government interventionist hygienic approach to life was more adaptive to dealing with COVID. Right? If you, generally speaking, followed liberal left prescriptions for reacting to COVID, you were more likely to survive and have an opportunity to pass on your genes to the next generation. There will be plenty of other circumstances where a right-wing approach is more adaptive. Right? There's no one type of politics nor one race, nor any group or social class or religion who is just ineluctably marked out by the will of heaven to always be right. Now, had some other insights on uh, that opening segment uh, from Tucker. Uh, Gavin Newsom and J.B. Pritzker are not responsible for California and Illinois' crime wave. They have almost no direct power to influence crime rates in California or Illinois. Law enforcement is overwhelmingly a local matter. Blaming Gavin Newsom and J.B. Prisker for the crime problems in Illinois or in California makes as much sense as blaming the violence that followed the, the summer of George Floyd, right? That, that massive upsurge in violence that we saw after George Floyd's death, blaming that on Donald Trump. Policing in the United States is overwhelmingly a local matter, right? So it's simply not fair to put a great deal of blame on Gavin Newsom or J.B. Pritzker for their state's crime rates, unless you want to blame Donald Trump for the massive upsurge in violence in the summer of 2020. And uh, Tucker says that J.B. Pritzker just loosened, loosed all these criminals on Illinois. So I'm assuming... And I guess Gavin Newsom, I'm assuming this perhaps has something to do with their powers of governor to release people from jail during the COVID crisis. So when I initially thought that, I thought, that's that's crazy. What's the factual basis? But then I realized that a lot of prisoners were released from prison during COVID to you know, save save from you know massive COVID death tolls. And so, yeah, to, to the extent that they're talking about something fact-based, then I think it's appropriate to blame J.B. Pritzker and Gavin Newsom. Maybe that releasing of, of criminals from prison, maybe that did make a substantial contribution to California and Illinois' crime waves. So wherever the facts lead, so now in retrospect, maybe Tucker Carlson was right. Maybe Gavin and J.B. played a significant role in, in the crime waves that, that uh, hit their respective states. And then... All this blaming of Joe Biden, I think that's just an externalizing of unwanted feelings of frustration with life. Like Joe Biden isn't doing very much. Joe Biden hasn't done very much as president. I just don't see that he's worthy of a whole lot of intense feelings in, in any direction. Right? He's fairly close to a, a non-entity. I mean, as much of a non-entity as you can get when you're the most powerful man in the world. But he hasn't really done much, right? He's not changing America. I mean, he may have had an ambition of changing America just like FDR, but he hasn't done that. He's, by and large, had very few accomplishments. He's he's changed very few you know, significant parts of life for the average American. If you're an average American who's not interested in politics, there's no discernible 
way to notice any real life differences between Joe Biden being president and Donald Trump being president. If your life is primarily concerned with your work, your family and your hobbies and your religion, there's nothing inherent in your participation in any of those activities that's going to be substantially altered depending on if it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump who's president. So I think often we walk around with a lot of frustration and rage and anger, and we're looking for someone to dump it on. And if you're on the right, as I am, then dumping it on Democrats and dumping it on, on Joe Biden is very tempting, but may not be appropriate. Vulnerability dodge is a predictable... So let's get in touch with our feelings. Somebody who's grown up in an environment where they haven't felt like they can trust themselves in other people's hands, that when they're sad, scared, lonely. So when you're sad, scared, and lonely, do you feel like you can't trust yourself in other people's hands? This is Craig Malkin, a psychologist at Harvard Medical School. And he wrote a great book on narcissism, which really helped me. And he make, makes the point that narcissism is much more of a state than a condition, right? So right now I'm in a narcissistic state because I want you to look at me and I want you to admire me. If I didn't want you to admire me, why would I be doing these shows, right? I just don't do them for the public good. I don't just do them for social welfare. I don't simply do them to shine a light and to increase goodness and kindness and truth in the world. There's also an element of, I want to be admired. And I, I don't know anyone who's going to do a live stream who doesn't want to be admired, all right? And the more intense your desire for admiration, the more narcissistic you are. And what drives people to seek out excessive amounts of admiration is this inability to deal with their own vulnerabilities. If people can't be vulnerable, right, they are going to excuse themselves from being open and honest and vulnerable and try to find an arena where they can show that they're superior to everyone else. And that assuages those feelings of vulnerability. They blue. They don't feel like they can turn to people with those vulnerable feelings for mutual care and comfort and connection and to really get help and support. And the vulnerability dodge is a way of avoiding those feelings while self-enhancing at the same time. And Reasonable and Responsible says, is government intervention for public health and safety incompatible with right-wing view? No, but it's not the right-wing reflex nearly as much as it is the left-wing reflex. The left-wing reflex is to make life as hygienic and safe as possible. Right? That does not tend to be the right-wing reflex. Does Pritzker's obesity set a good example? Uh, no, but... Like, who's taking their cues from the governor of Illinois? I mean, who's taking their cues from Joe Biden, right? You, you really think there are tens of thousands, let alone millions of Americans who are taking their cues from Joe Biden? It's like, oh, Joe Biden rides a bike. I better go ride a bike. Uh, Joe Biden shuffles when he walks. I better start shuffling when I walk. Uh, Joe Biden's on this amazing cocktail uh, of medications before he needs to do anything important publicly, I better find my own amazing cocktail of medications. So I don't think that that a significant number of people are, are modeling themselves on J.B. Pritzker or on Joe Biden or on Luke Ford. That is what's unique to this, because many of us engage in some version of these patterns I'm going to talk about. But what makes it unique and what makes it different 
and makes it more of a tell uh, in early on in a relationship for somebody who struggles with extreme narcissism, that it's that dodge of. And Elliot Blatt says Joe Biden blamed oil prices on gas station proprietors. That is an obvious intentional lie. Yeah, it is. My God, I can't believe it. President of the United States said an obvious intentional lie. He also blamed high gas prices on Vladimir Putin. Right? It's, it's the Putin price hike. Right, so he's he's another politician. Really shocking. Yes, you are my narcissistic supply, and thank you, thank you. But at least I'm being vulnerable, so I don't need to amp up my narcissism to show that I'm better than you. Like I don't have that as intensely because I'm not dodging my vulnerability. Right, this is this is a, a circle of radical love and inclusion. Vulnerable feelings paired with some way of feeling exceptional or special or unique. It is an end run around those vulnerable feelings, because if I really don't trust that I. Yeah, we no longer, guys, we no longer need to run from our vulnerable feelings, right? We no longer need to fear putting ourselves in each other's hands. I can tell that you have me. If I was to fall off my perch right now, I can feel your hands reaching out to to gather me in. And I admit I, I was walking along the beach and, and I saw two sets of footprints. And, and then after a while, I just saw one set of footprints and I started thinking, Laponius, what the hell, bro? Like, how, how did you leave me when I needed you most? And you said to me, 40, I didn't leave you. That's when I picked you up in my arms and I carried you. So you're carrying me, all right? I, I can't do a show on my own. I, I'm not Kevin Michael Grace. I don't have that authority. I don't have that that sense of, of righteous indignation, right? I, I don't have his ability to set the room temperature, right? All that I am, right, is because of you. Like, I could not do this show unless you were, you know, stimulating me in a completely no-homo uh, fashion, Right. So Forty reads the books. Forty does the work. You love death. Forty loves life. Look at Luke gleaming like a gold shackle. The left wingers are hypochondriacs. Well, what many right wing wingers consider hypochondria is probably adaptive in some circumstances. Right. My tendency and the tendency of blokes like me is to not go see the doctor very much. But sometimes that's maladaptive. Right. So sometimes it's better not to go to the doctor. If I'd gone to the doctor, I might have caught monkeypox. Right. I might have. There are all sorts of horrible diseases in the hospital. You really don't want to be hanging out at the hospital more than you need to. On the other hand, facing up to when you have a vulnerability and should go get checked out. Right. Sometimes that is the better path to go. So sometimes the, the so called hypochondriac approach is more adaptive, and sometimes it's less adaptive. Yeah, right-wingers tend to have a keener disgust reflex, tend to be more averse to chaos and to mess. Did Forty get a facelift or something? He looks terrific. I spent yesterday afternoon at the Venice Beach, and that beach was crowded. I mean, it was jam-packed with really fit women wearing bikinis, but I didn't even notice them. I didn't even gaze upon the bathing beauties. I mean, they were just strolling by. And I was at the beach for almost three hours, but the whole time my mind was focused on thoughts of Torah. So 
like other lesser beings than myself, they'd be like checking out the chicks and oh, wow, that one's really fit. And like, wow, look at all these fit white chicks. But man, I, I was untangling the mysteries of the Torah. So I, I did not, I did not leak out my essence all over the, the grainy soil, right? I wasn't just distracted from my life's mission. Like I did not lose my emotional sobriety, right? I wasn't there, you know, trying to hook up and, and, you know, perv and, and like chat up. I was just there thinking of Torah, going for a nice swim. I went for a lovely jog on the beach. So as opposed to like jogging in LA where usually you're jogging over concrete, you know, I just took off, went for a jog and there were like 150 people engaged in some like silent disco. They, they all had headphones on and they were all dancing. I think, God, thank God for the Torah that, that protects me from the, the great evils of dancing with women. So I, I threaded my way through the hedonist dancing on the beach, you know, got my jog on, occupied by thoughts of Torah. I was wearing my sunscreen, right? Like my, my mother would have wanted. So I got to see some correspondence. My mother, my mother died just before I turned four. I'm not sure I've ever seen her handwriting before, but I got to read some of her correspondence this weekend. And I got, got to see how she wrote my name. And that was kind of cool. Like, there's my name written by my mother. She was thinking about me before she died. I often thought, why, why didn't my mom like, write me a letter that I could read when I was older? I guess she wrote me a letter, one, in the book that she published, and then two, in, in her correspondence. I can, I can read that as a, as a letter for me. We grew up in an era where lying presidents were cons considered scandalous. But did we really? I mean, really, is there any dramatic difference between the amount of lies told by Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump and Barack Obama with John F. Kennedy Dwight Eisenhower, Linda Baines-Johnson, Richard Nixon, Jimmy Carter. So John Mearsheimer wrote the book on why, why politicians lie. And he makes the point that politicians rarely tell lies to foreign nations because foreigners have no incentive for believing your lies, that the politicians really only lie to domestic audiences. Left-wing examples of promoting health are AIDS pills commercials and promoting that lifestyle. Well, for some people, it's really important that you get the PrEP, bro. I mean, have you got the PrEP? Do you have the monkeypox vaccine? Probably shouldn't go enjoy some gay orgies if you don't have the PrEP and the monkeypox vaccine. Forty enjoys being stimulated by men in the chat. Not that there's anything wrong with it. <laughs> Who wants to give 40 the monkey gift? Do you wear a mask like Duva did outdoors at the Indian party? I There was a time where I wore a mask outdoors. I didn't think about it. It just seemed like the thing to do to signal that you're taking this seriously. So I think like March, April, May, maybe even June of 2020, I may have worn the mask outside. And then I... I didn't do that so much unless I was going to be around a lot of other people. I generally socially distanced for the first year of COVID. Yes, 40 was praying without ceasing at the beach. And that's how I was able to ward off the temptation for those really fit women. 
I choose Ricardo to give Forty the gift of monkeypox. Get it over with so we can party with reckless abandon. <sighs> oh, now, don't you just love Craig Malkin? Isn't he amazing? I mean, isn't he so much more thoughtful than Tucker Carlson? I can risk telling you if I am sad or ashamed or angry, uh, that you'll listen, that you'll understand, that you'll care, that I'm going to try to find ways to soothe myself in some other fashion. And really the vulnerability dodge is an attempt to leave out those feelings, to deny them in oneself and to feel better by turning to some sense of feeling special, either especially misunderstood in the case of, say, covert narcissism or brilliant and beautiful or handsome in the case of overt narcissism in any way, in any form that it takes. Okay, you've been very kind. You've been very patient. So now you get a big, stiff helping of some hate porn. Well, you often hear politicians brag about their public service. It's such a sacrifice. And yet Nancy Pelosi's career suggests maybe you missed your calling. She spent three decades in Congress, and yet somehow Nancy Pelosi is worth tens of millions of dollars. How'd you get so rich? Well, her husband, Paul Pelosi, operates an investment firm, and he's made a lot of remarkably well-timed trades over the years. He really should be on CNBC. Just the other day, he made another one. Paul Pelosi snapped up between $1 and $5 million worth of stock in NVIDIA. That's a semiconductor company. Now, it turns out Congress is preparing to vote on a $50 billion subsidy to the semiconductor industry. Hmm. Charles Gasparino is a senior correspondent with Fox Business. He joins us to assess his story. Charles, thanks so much for coming on. Is there any way to get Paul Pelosi's stock tips before he does the trades? I, I mean, this dude is a rising star on Wall Street. Uh, Dan Loeb, <laughs> Stevie Cohen. They got exactly. nothing on this guy. He almost never misses. Uh, you know, it really is remarkable. You know, here's the thing, Tucker. Obviously, this brings up the notion of is this insider trading? Is she giving him some tips? We should point out that, you know, the, the SEC and the, and the DOJ have brought cases on, you know, insider tips in pillow, you know, via pillow talk. Trust me on it, it's happened. I don't believe this hits the insider trading bar. Uh, you know, a lot of this information about this legislation was bouncing around there. It has to be material, non-public, stolen, disappropriated. It kind of doesn't hit those barriers. But what this does hit is limousine liberalism, arrogance on steroids. I mean, he knows that he has an information edge. Not saying it's illegal, but he knows he has an information edge. He and his wife talk about stuff, right? Kevin? Evening, Tucker. From 2008 to 2016, Hunter Biden met with his dad about 30 times, either at the White House or over at the VP's residence. And here's the key. He often did so just days after returning home from overseas business trips. And that's according to the New York Post, which has actually reviewed a lot of material from Hunter's now infamous laptop. Those gatherings, as you can well imagine, Tucker, raised very serious questions about the veracity of the president's claim that he knew nothing about nor ever discussed overseas business dealings with his son. And here are just a few examples uh, that would suggest otherwise. April 15, 2016, 8.15 in the morning, he meets with the PM of Ivory Coast. At 9 o'clock, he's chatting it up with his dad over at the Naval Observatory. February 2012, courted by Russian oligarchs in Moscow. Four days after his return, once again meeting with his father at the Naval Observatory. And then this one from March 2012, Hunter, Associates, and Joe Biden all meeting with the former president of Colombia, whose business Hunter had been courting for months. In one email, long before the meeting, Hunter told the former Colombian leader, I am checking on my dad's schedule. The implication, of course, being that Hunter was relaying messages to his father on behalf of foreign clients. Now, critics have argued if that's true, Joe Biden's a liar. And worse, he could be compromised. It could also mean multiple FARA violations for Hunter, something obviously worth keeping a very close eye on as we continue to unpack everything from the laptop. Tucker? What a story. Kevin Corkforce tonight. Thanks so much for that. You bet. Now, keep in mind, Joe Biden has said in public, I knew nothing about my son's business dealings with China, for example. That's a lie. And we can prove it. We've got much more on Hunter Biden's calendar, and we'll have it for you soon. 
Well, Leah Thomas is a man, biologically, and yet, for some reason, he was nominated for the NCAA Woman of the Year. Outrageous. Just, just so outrageous. All right, so are you feeling intensely about all this? This is a safe place, right? You don't have to dodge your vulnerability anymore, says Craig really Malkin. an attempt to soothe and leave those more vulnerable feelings out. So a really great example of this is something that I call playing emotional hot potato. And if you want a simple example, I talk about in Rethinking Narcissism this moment where one of my clients was applying to graduate school. You can think of, say, applying for a job, or you can see making plans with a friend. And her partner, the man that she was living with, was standing over her shoulder. And he had been doing these things all along. I didn't realize I'm talking about somebody that she's living with, but there were little signs all along the way of this kind where he's standing over his shoulder saying, are you sure you want to apply there? Not sure that's best suited to what you bring to the table. You know, what do you think? Yeah, Glenn Medley, good, good parody of uh, 40 Wisdom. Hunter Biden is just doing the best he can with the tools he has at his <laughs> availability. Think about this school or say if she was making plans with, with a friend, why do you want to go there? And with, with that particular friend, haven't you told me you had difficulties with that friend? before you think this is really the, the best idea. In both examples, what's going on there is that this is somebody who, because they don't trust that they can turn to their partner or anybody else with those feelings, are not acknowledging those feelings and saying, for example, I really don't know what I'm gonna do in my life. I'm not sure what my trajectory is for the next few years. I need help. Can we sit down and talk about this? I, I'm just not. Okay. A brief overview, covert versus overt. You want to think of covert narcissism as people who uh, feel special, unique, exceptional compared to the rest of humanity uh, on the inside. Doug, got it. That wasn't the video I wanted to show you. I was going to blow your mind. So Richard Spencer is making fun of victimhood. He has a call with his Substack subscribers July 7, 2022. It's called We Was Victims. Uh, for a dinner just before I got on. But um, what was I saying? So. Like, we're not really going to be playing, we're not going to be allowed to play the victim game. And in some ways... There's no way you can get out of playing the victim game. All that matters is how intense the game is for you, right? You cannot go through life without intermittently feeling like a victim. And you certainly can't have in-group identities without significant sense of victimhood, right? Sense of victimhood brings people together. Sense of victimhood clarifies identity. And a sense of victimhood provides purpose and energy and direction, right? Victimhood is indispensable to the good life. Now, you don't want to have exorbitant amounts of it, right? You want to keep it under control. Like, not everybody can handle their victimhood, right? Just just uh, get into your victimology on weekends, right? Try to do it moderately. I mean, in some ways for good reason, because it feels like you're just arguing for privilege on some level. Um, we're not about to be slaughtered. And there are like hate crimes or whatever, but there are hate crimes everywhere. And I, I did notice this with a lot of the, um, particularly since the George Floyd stuff, there was an attempt to almost like have a battle of hate crimes where, you know, it would be like, oh, this black criminal deserved it. But like, well, this is unfortunate boys, but we have to face the truth. Like a police, uh, the police acted uh, uh, poorly here and um, he should have used his taser, whereas he used his gun. It was just this like battle of who could be more victimized. And I, I don't think, I think that kind of thing is ultimately deeply demoralizing and you're not allowed to play it anyway. And so it becomes this like kind of performative gesture that has no real support. 
You know, it's like, oh, we're this is real. We're we're using good optics, so we're doing things right. But no one's paying attention because it's communicated really poorly and it's just dumb. Um, and so I I don't know. I mean, I don't want to spend my life like being a uh, jerk and pointing all this stuff out. But I, I do remember a lot of very bad aspects and just lying and retconning on behalf of TRS when I was connected with them. I mean, I don't I don't have I've not spoken with any of these people in years, and I don't ever plan to. But this just very slimy behavior, um, which I could go into. So tell me, is it possible to have a strong Jewish identity, Christian identity, American identity, uh, right-wing identity, Republican identity without a sense of victimhood? I just don't see how a normal person with a group identity is not going to have a sense of, of victimhood. Right? I mean, I think of myself as elevated spiritual being who, who kind of strives for objectivity, who tries to live at the 10,000 foot level. I try to operate with about as low a victim identity as possible, but I, I don't think I'm getting down below a two on a one to 10 scale. I mean, if you're a normal Orthodox Jew, Seventh-day Adventist, traditional Christian, traditional Muslim, you'll be cruising around with at least a three, right? So this argument for or against victimology kind of misses the point that feeling like a victim at times is simply inherent in being human, inherent in belonging to any group. The only question is how salient and how intense is your victimology? I mean, victim feeling like a victim is frequently an essential part of bonding with others, creating community, creating a willingness to sacrifice for the common good, and it's a source of energy and purpose and direction. So being a victim has nothing to do with objective measurement. Right. So nationalism isn't some objective, you know, thought through doctrine. All right. When, when people are nationalists, it's based on a state of mind. It's a feeling of belonging to to an extended family. Um, and just a, a complete lack of seriousness. But anyway, I, I think what I was trying to draw out of it, because some people were responding this morning, is that I... I think we're we're in this new world where there is no mainstream media in the way that there was. And Glenn Medley says, don't hate the player, hate the game, but better you should love both. And I'm back hanging from tree branches, guys. I am back making progress towards doing chin-ups and pull-ups. So I had to desist from that. I, I embarked on that mission about uh, six weeks ago and gave me all sorts of like golfer's elbow, you know, elbow pain. But this afternoon, I was back out there swinging from tree branches. So if you're walking around Beverly Hills, you see me swinging from a tree branch, you know, don't, don't call the cops. I'm just working out, bro. Even 20 years ago. So 20 years ago, before 9-11, uh, the nightly news and the three major broadcasters, Dan Rather, Peter Jenkins, okay, um, Peter changed this and radically. It's in video online and the you know, internet. Obviously, things have been radically fragmented. And I don't think people fully understood what that was going to lead to. And in 2016, and even to this day, certainly in 2020, I think we got an idea of it, which was these self-contained groups. And they can be used in a way that they can be used and manipulated um, in ways that the mainstream media really couldn't. To gain access to the mainstream media, you have to be invited. And certainly the, the government or the deep state can craft a narrative. They can claim that you know, Saddam Hussein killed all these women on incubators in 1990 or whatever the lie was in the first World War. And they can craft a narrative that fits the system's agenda. Uh, weapons of mass destruction, which is promoted, among other places, by the New York Times. 
another key example of that. So it wasn't even a left-right thing. Um, now, I think these groups can be manipulated in ways as well. And I think that's very important to focus on. So QAnon was a like user-generated phenomenon to a very large extent. It wasn't so much about the Q drops, which were, you know, You've been such a lovely audience. I mean, just really the best. And, and just to show my appreciation, you're going to get a couple minutes here of hate porn, but try to use it reasonably and responsibly. Interesting. The Rubik's Cube Olympics, showering the teacher with adoration, kids who can draw like draftsmen. Now, we saw all of those by registering an Apple device in China, just because we wanted to know what are they watching on TikTok. Now, you know what American kids, your kids are watching on TikTok, stuff like this. There's also a huge genre on American TikTok of videos convincing your kids to get a sex change. Now, none of this stuff comes up randomly. It's curated. It's determined by an algorithm. Now, on Chinese TikTok, there are lots of videos of college graduations, for example. You're seeing those on your screen right now. So in China, TikTok is wholesome, affirming. In the United States, well, it's a driver of social chaos. What's going on here exactly? Nicholas Chalian is a former Air Force chief software officer. He joins us tonight. Mr. Chalian, thanks so much for coming on. Can this be accidental? No, absolutely not. This is something that China has designed from the beginning, first launching Douyin in China with a very different process. First, for kids under 14, you cannot spend more than 40 minutes a day on the application. They know how toxic it is, for, particularly for younger generations, but also they are banning the application after uh, nighttime. That's very important as well. The other piece is that, uh, effectively, the two applications are completely different, like you said, completely different algorithm. What you're going to find uh, on the Douyin application is effectively pushing educational content, historical uh, content, and, of course, science. Uh, that's not an accident. It's really designed to effectively push the rest of the world to become imbeciles. Has the United States ever, in the past, say, five years, acted in its own interest to protect its own people from China ever, anywhere? Have you ever seen that? Or we just sit passively by and allow this? No, it's, it's definitely a perfect example of what you see uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party uh, leading in, in really what is effectively a, a weapon of misinformation and, and really, at the end of the day, uh, is capable of swaying elections as well across the, the world. Yeah. Let's convince their kids to get sterilized. Okay. Nick Chalian, appreciate your coming on tonight for that perspective. I, I don't think we think enough about this, but we should. Appreciate we should. it. Thank, Thank you for you. having me. Thank you. 
So a friend of ours is in the friend zone coming up. I'll tell you who it is in just a minute. Also, we took some questions after speaking to the Family Leadership Summit in Iowa over the weekend. You can watch that Q&A and the speech. It's all on TuckerCarlson.com. Here's part of it. People of faith, people who know for a fact not only that God exists, but even more critically, that they are not God. Let me repeat. People who know that they are not God are the only reason this is still a decent society. It's the only reason. Because when you know you're not God, it puts everything into perspective. There are things that you can't do because you're not allowed. Wish you had the power to do that. I mean, what human being hasn't thought, especially in traffic, I'd like to kill that person. No, I'm serious. No, you don't have the right to do that because you're not God. There are all kinds of limits, but there are also, once you realize you're not God and somebody else is... There is the fundamental recognition that every other human being, from the president to the homeless guy to some person in India or Africa, every human being on the planet is equal, not in ability or experience, but in value, the thing that matters most, in value. God values every person exactly the same. Because of the actions that happened on 9-11. So... One of the most recent academic analyses of AA and 12-step programs is called Not God. So that's kind of the basis of 12-step programs is understanding that you are not God. So where did Tucker Carlson get his conservatism? And it was probably sparked early in life in reaction to his first grade teacher, Mrs. Raymond. Now, the Washington Post did did a big article trying to expose that uh, you know this is some embellished story, right? That that uh, Tucker Carlson just made it up, but they didn't even bother to investigate the story a little bit more. They just took the little bit of the story from Tucker Carlson's book, but here's some of the background. So. I think first grade, Tucker Carlson had a teacher, Mrs. Rain, Raymond, who was a preening progressive who occupied class time railing against the evils of the class system and white bread, making nasty remarks about conservative politicians and teaching little. The straw that broke the camel's back arrived when she was invited to his home to provide extra tutoring to him and his brother. Rather than just doing her job, she instead took his father to task for allowing the children to eat Captain Crunch cereal. Confronting the spectacle with a look of shock and horror on her face, the look of a priest who has stumbled into a black mass. She was promptly ejected from the home, and it was this encounter that first instructed Tucker Carlson in the meaning of conservatism. So a conservative, writes Tucker, is someone who instinctively sides with the individual over the group, who understands that not every choice is a moral issue, and that sometimes people just prefer plastic to paper, a suburban to a Prius, and that's okay. So the Washington Post wanted to come along and uh, go after this Raymond story. And uh, they, they quote her as saying that this never happened. This is all, all made up. And what was, the, what was their proof for this? That uh, Tucker Carlson's family, Tucker Carlson's family, you know, brought her in to tutor Right, that, that's their proof. But the Tucker Carlson story in another place, not just his 
2016, 2017 book, said, yeah, she was brought in to tutor and then she was fired. So you can look at her, Mariana Raymond. And do you think that she was a good teacher or do you think that she was some kind of liberal snowflake? So despite all the talk of celebrating diversity, colleges and universities do not, in fact, mean the celebration, deep study, and appreciation of evangelical fundamentalist Protestant culture, nor traditional Catholic culture, nor of the gender roles of Orthodox Jews or Shiite Islamic culture, nor of Black American Pentecostal culture, nor the culture of the white rural South. These are not multicultural. So reading from this terrific work in progress, by Ronnie Goodman, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression, The Nature and Origins of Conservophobia. Right? So just like diversity, sensitivity is a facially, you know, on the face of it, a universal liberal ideal that is unobjectionable in the abstract, but university solicitude for diverse group identities does not extend to those who reject the dominant dispensation. So campus speech codes protect the sensibilities of left-wing students, but they allow these same students to label conservative blacks Uncle Toms to label anti-feminist women more chicks. So students who believe homosexuality is sinful can be charged with harassing their gay and lesbian cohorts, but pro-choice students who surround a silent pro-life vigil and chant racist, sexist, anti-gay, born-again bigots go away, these guys are just engaged in a protected speech. So liberals think they know how to put themselves in others' shoes. So imagine this thought experiment. Imagine a secular, skeptical, or leftist faculty and students confronted by a religious harassment code that prohibits denigration of evangelical or Catholic or Orthodox Jewish beliefs, or that made the classroom or campus a space where evangelical or Catholic or Orthodox Jewish students must be protected against feeling intimidated, offended, or by their own subjective experience, victims of a hostile environment. Imagine a university of patriotic loyalty oaths, where leftists were deemed responsible for the tens of millions of victims of communism, where free minds were prohibited from creating a hostile environment for patriots or traditional religious people, or from offending that minority of individuals who are descended from Korean or Vietnam War veterans. Imagine that for every case that became public, there are hundreds of cases in which the offender or the victimizer desperate to preserve a job or to gain a degree, accepted a confidential plea bargain that included a semester's or a year's re-education in religious sensitivity or patriotic sensitivity seminars run by the university's evangelical center or patriotic center or office of religious and patriotic compliance. Imagine that. Vaguely prophetic or sometimes not vaguely prophetic and they would be proven incorrect but kind of oracular and, and sometimes seemingly biblical in their pronouncements. And, you know, it would be like, hold tight, uh, you know, patriots, remember Mockingbird, um, follow the money, you know, uh, why does Soros want Hillary out of the 2020 campaign, question mark, and then, you know, God bless all patriots, we will win, Q. You know, just all of this stuff like that. And it was user generated. So there was a creation of all of these hive minds and swarms. And you can go back to 2016 and see all of this stuff, which I, I looking back upon it, I, I kind of see it a little bit differently, but I, I think the main thing is that I understand it for the objective reality that it is, um, which is that the troll storm and TRS was integral in this as well, as well as but Andrew I, I Anglin and the Daily I, Stormer, where an article would come up by David French on why he's proud to be a conservative or something. And within an hour, there, the comments board is flooded 
with pro-Trump com- content, links to TRS podcasts, links to the Daily Stormer, just various harassment of David French of you know, various kinds, uh, just all of this nonsense. And it really, again, I don't think Trump would have won in 2016 without the alt-right. And by that, I don't really mean me. Um, I mean, because I was kind of a figurehead for this thing, this board that was out there. I mean, all of this online activity that was spreading information, spreading a lot of disinformation and um, making, getting into people's heads in ways that the public had not been able to get into people's heads uh, previously. But those kinds of organizations, you know, like TRS, I mean, they are malleable. I mean, they are manipulable, manipulate. <laughs> What's the right word? They can be manipulated. And they can, they always have a kind of line that this hive centers around. You've been such a lovely audience. It's wonderful to be here. It's certainly a thrill. You're such a lovely audience. We'd like to take you home with us. We'd like to take you home. I don't really want to stop the show, but I thought you might like to know that the singer's going to sing a song and he wants you all to sing along. So let me introduce to you Tucker Carlson. The job description of a comedian is not so different from the job description of a journalist, as traditionally constituted, tell the truth about the powerful. Comedians are usually a lot smarter, more clever and incisive than journalists, but that's what they're supposed to be doing. Almost none still do. Adam Carolla is one of the very few remaining comedians in the United States. He's out with a new book called Everything Reminds Me of Something, Advice, Answers, But No Apologies. He joins us tonight in the Friend Zone to tell us about it. Adam, great to see you. Everything reminds me of something. What does that mean? You know, I just realized that every time I started a story or somebody brought something up, it made me think of something else that I wanted to talk about. I know you probably are afflicted with that condition and it drives everyone around us insane. But I just yelled that out one day. Everything reminds me of something. And I thought that'd be a good title for a book. Well, it's a perfect title for a book. But it could also be I'm I'm over 50. (laughs) I think it's a function of age. So what's the book about? Well, normally I just sit down and write funny books that are sort of interesting and hopefully poignant. In this particular case, I took questions from celebrity friends and I took questions from fans of my show. And so it forced me to think about things I'd never thought about before, because normally you sit down and write a book and you think, all right, here's what I want to talk about. But when someone says, answer this question, you think, I've never thought of that question. And it starts to lead you in places that you wouldn't have been able to lead yourself. Like I started thinking about things like, and it's in the book, when I was younger, when we were just a few years younger, when people would have a faux pas, they misspeak, they would write a letter of apology that said, if anyone was offended, I apologize. Now they say, if anyone was affected, we apologize. And offended is on you. That just means you couldn't take a joke or you're too uptight. But affected means we did something to you. So think about just the use of the word offended as we heard growing up and in, uh, up until recently versus affected. And affected means we have to change. That means you must be fired. You must be removed from your That's job. Right. You're affecting people. Offending people, it's like, hey, dude, lighten up. Get a sense of humor. Smart. Language changes imperceptibly, but the effects of it are everywhere. What's the best question you got? Um, I had a question that said, if it's 2022, males and females are equal. How come you don't see men riding on the back of motorcycles holding on to their wives? 
in, in a world of total equality. And I thought, I have no idea. But then I thought about it and I said, <laughs> the guys who ride motorcycles are old school and the guys that are progressive and are 50-50 with the wives are scared and would never own a motorcycle because they're right. double mass somewhere in the basement. And I thought, I think that's the answer. But I never would have thought about it had it not been asked. <laughs> Plus, I know no matter how progressive the man, every man on some level knows, if you said to your wife, I'm going to sit and back and hold on to you, ultimately she's going to divorce you for that. Yes. You know, I think agreed. that's just true. Adam Carolla, comedian, author. Okay, so got, got a uh, great quote here from Christopher Lash, right, talking about the hygienic mindset. So upper middle class liberals, right, they, they have an inability to grasp the importance of class differences in shaping attitudes toward life. They, they fail to reckon with the class obsession, class dimension of their obsession with health and moral uplift. So they find it hard to understand why their hygienic conception of life fails to command universal enthusiasm. So they have mounted a crusade to sanitize American society, to create a smoke-free environment, to censor everything from pornography to hate speech. And at the same time, to extend the range of personal choice in matters where most people feel the need for sorrow, solid moral guidelines. So when confronted with resistance to these initiatives, they tend to betray the venomous hatred that lies not far beneath the smiling face of upper middle class benevolence. So there's a book that came out a few years ago, Proud to be Right. It's an anthology of introspective essays by a new generation of emerging young conservatives. And Student Helen Rittlemeyer explains that her cohort at Yale University smoked on principle. They were bothered by smoking bans, bans which undeservedly gave the modern court of health the force of law. So reacting to this, she and her friends chose to embody conservative values rather than articulate them, which is what smoking allowed them to do. So for reasons they never quite understood, smoking felt like a rebellion against Yale's moral consensus that the two most important things in life are for everyone to be happy, for everyone to get along. So to smoke at Yale or UCLA is to reject the devil's bargain of liberalism, whose unrelenting pursuit of health, safety, civility, and cooperation stifles the natural freedom of the human spirit, whether through political correctness, business regulation, or campus regulation. So this is why smoking can qualify as political resistance. So smoking at Yale is to the conservative claimant of cultural oppression what burning a bra was to the 1970s feminist. Right, nothing that was ever intended to constitute an eloquent statement of philosophical principle, but rather a go-for-the-gut challenge to taken-for-granted social understandings. So it's not a substitute for ideas. It's an attempt to raise the consciousness without which certain ideas cannot even be entertained. So back in the 19th century, liberals often called for a common national identity that was frequently tied to, at the same time, an ethnocentric denigration of small national groups. So it was common to distinguish great nations like France, Italy, Poland, Germany, Hungary, Spain, England, and Russia from smaller, mere nationalities like the Czechs, the Slovaks, the Croats, the Basques, the Welsh, the Scots, the Serbs, the Bulgarians, the Romanians, and the Slovenes. So the great nations were upheld as the civilized carriers of historical progress. The smaller nationalities were denigrated as primitive and stagnant, incapable of social or cultural development. And so 
many 19th century liberals endorsed national independence for great nations, but coercive assimilation for smaller nationalities. So John Stuart Mill said, it's undeniably better for a Scottish Highlander to be a part of Great Britain or for a Basque to be part of France than to sulk on his own rocks, the half savage relic of past times revolving in his own little mental orbit without participation or interest in the general movement of the world. Well, liberals carry on this same tradition, all right? So they live in places like New York, Boston, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and they see conservative regions of America as primitive and stagnant. So middle America reminds the elite of those maps of Africa used by 19th century explorers that were largely blank in the middle to signify terra incognita, unknown land. So the explorers thought cannibals lived there. The elites, on the other hand, believe a mysterious tribe known as Red Neckus Americanus occupies these strange lands. So the liberal elites will denounce racism and bigotry and xenophobia at every turn. But these are the same people who will not hesitate to slip into bad southern drawers to ridicule southerners. So liberal elites will chalk up these complaints of conservophobia to conservative self-pity. But the alternative hypothesis is that conservophobia is a contemporary variant of an ethnocentrism among liberals that was once considered fully compatible with liberalism, right? Certain peoples deserve agency and national identity, but other people, nope, sorry, you don't deserve it. And if you buck that line, you will get knocked down. And it has a very strong immune system in this sense. And you can see this with the kind of various, you know, again, this is all internet history at this point, but you can see this with the various takes that TRS has taken over the years where, you know, oh, we're all pro-Trump. Um, oh, we're doing activism. We're going to Charlottesville. Oh, activism's horrible. We're optics. We're all conservatives now. We're American nationalists. Um, oh, now we're on the Yang Gang after Trump lost the midterms. Oh, they, they were very steadfast with Trump throughout the midterms. And then it was basically, I think the turn came when they, they had this government shutdown crisis of 2019. I don't know if you guys remember, yes. but he was yeah. trying to get wall funding and he was just running up against an impasse. And at that point, there was like a reaction against that of like, oh, we're on the Yang Gang. Trump doesn't do anything. So we just want free, you know, a thousand bucks a month or whatever. Fuck you. And then they got back on the Trump train. Um, then 2020 rolled around. Um, I mean, I think TRS was off it to a large extent, but kind of still there. Um, then January 6th rolls around and, you know, they are you know, offering up hymns and pains to Ashley Babbitt in January 6th. And I mean, that thing that I posted in my Twitter thread, you know, I mean, I saw that, I remember I, I was, it was actually on Somtish. You can go back and search Somtish if you want. But people were posting this. I'm just like, this is so insane. Um, it was basically this Warren Baylaw guy who I've met and he struck me as pretty nice um, saying that, what, what is his argument? That the Germans, you know, they were willing to lose 20 million people. So we've only lost one in our battle against the Jews, Ashley Babbitt. So we can't give up until we've lost as many as the Germans lost. It's just some horrifying and horrible argument like that, which makes no sense, but it's just bizarre. And I guess, you know, some of the kind of meaner things I said, I, I think are worth saying, to be honest, like, who are the Nazis, you know, like Mike and Jesse go, you know, say the N word on podcasts and talk about how base they are and so on. Well, all of those boomer cocks who you made fun of literally engaged in treason and an attempted insurrection in order to install Trump in a, I guess, quasi dictatorial capacity for four years. They did that. They risk so much. I mean, I don't support them at all, but TRS or NJP does. 
I mean, I don't support them. I think Trump for another four years would have been just more of the nonsense that we had for four Okay, so Richard was just talking there about a New York Times article, but he doesn't really go into how he's featured in this New York Times article. All right, the article's called An American's Murky Path from Russian Propagandist to January 6th. So Charles Bowsman, a former financial executive who runs websites to promote far-right views, recorded footage in capital for a Russian TV producer soon after he fled to Moscow as a political refugee. So he was there inside the Capitol. And he's hosted the National Justice Party. All right. And he, he's uh, been quite active in right-wing politics. He took a hard right turn in 2016. Then in January 2018, he posted a lengthy polemic, It's Time to Drop the Jew Taboo. It was both an anti-Semitic manifesto and a call to action for the alt-right. So he wrote, the evidence suggests that much of human enterprise dominated and shaped by Jews is a bottomless pit of trouble with a peculiar penchant for mendacity and cynicism, hostility to Christianity and Christian values, and in geopolitics, a clear bloodlust. And this essay was welcomed by white nationalist figures like Richard Spencer, who called it a major event. And so he's turned his attention to two new websites devoted largely to white nationalist content. Headlines included Out of Control Black Violence and Jewish Intellectuals Call on Gays to Perform Sex Acts in Front of Children. So he's also connected to Mike Enoch. So Mike Enoch says that uh, Charles Bowsman hosted a party at his farm for an inaugural meeting of the National Justice Party in 2020. But afterwards, his group went its own way because it did not agree with Mr. Bowsman's preoccupation with uh, supporting Donald Trump. Four years previously. Um, they don't, they don't I don't deny that they risk something. Go ahead. They don't support them the way Nick Fuentes does. They defend them because of the awful way they've been treated by the All right, Dylan, the, the, the Sorry, okay, apology stuff. I, I just... I'll, I won't do it anymore. Well, you know, Nick Fuentes has never compared Ashley Babbitt's death to German deaths in their battle against world Jewry. Yeah, I didn't see that. I, I, well, that. That could have been one stupid thing he said, but at the end of the day, Fuentes agrees with the J6ers, hook, line, and sinker, and the uh, NJPers just think that the response was disproportionate and critical. Not that I, they didn't say right. that, though. They didn't say that, though. Yeah, that is a, yeah, that's a recalibration of their position. Initially, they said they, something like they, they stood in unlimited solidarity with the J6 rioters who had sanctified the fetid halls of Congress by their presence. Of course, they got huge pushback from within the movement for saying that. And they recalibrated to saying, well, OK, we don't endorse J6, but we want to defend the J6 rioters who are now supposedly being treated unjustly by the system. That's basically their position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They always recalibrate. They always claim that they were the ones warning about something when they were the ones endorsing it. You see this with Charlottesville. You see this with Trump. You see it's with everything. And I, I don't know if these people have like memories like gnats or something, but they just like they just keep moving on. But again, I'm calling them out for being pussies. Like, are, are you not? Wow. I mean, I'm sorry. Look, I'm not a Nazi and I don't support Trump. I've made that clear since like well, even 2017, but like certainly 2018, I was just completely hostile. So I am off to the train. I've been off for years and I endorsed Joe Biden for president. So I have no I don't need to like I mean, and I've said publicly, I've said I, I think the the what, what bothered me it wasn't just so much about like um punitive measures against j6 people i i do think you need to kind of like crack down a bit but going after all these people and keeping them in prison for these you know long fairly long sentences and then not going after like why is ali alexander or ali akbar walking around 
You know, I mean, I guess you could say, why is Donald Trump walking around? There is more than enough evidence to arrest these people. Now they did, they have arrested the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boy guy for sedition. But so maybe that all of this stuff is coming. But I agree, it does seem like you're, you're picking low hanging fruit by like some, you know, that crazy realtor from Dallas who was like flew in a private jet and then like took a picture of herself in the Capitol or something. And it's like, you, you got to spend three months in jail. You know, it's kind of like, all right, let's just kind of calm down a bit. You know, um, you know the, the, the shaman guy, don't you think he is a victim to some extent? You know, he's mentally ill. He's manipulated by Trump and all these people. Uh, he, there's no, you know, bad jokes and silliness and talking about the Trump campaign and all this kind of stuff. So I'm talking about this, I, I Richard actually, went on TRS. But at that time, it was just day. this like Trump fan site and general fan site. And they, at some point, and I, I think Mike went along with this, but I, I think it was actually Jesse Dunstan mainly, um, that they want to like have a party line and basically do stuff. Now, I went on there many times in 2016 and 2017, maybe even 2015. And again, it was like three hours of just kind of free for all, you know, bad jokes and silliness and talking about the Trump campaign and all this kind of stuff. And, and I actually remember having some interesting conversations. I, I remember talking with Mike on like a retrospective of 9-11 one time, which is not about conspiracy theories or anything, but it was, it was you know, it was serious stuff. And so like, if, if it were just that, I would defend it. I mean, I probably would suggest that they change their name, but for The Daily Show, basically, even the right stuff, I don't think. Anyway. It doesn't think that The Daily Show. It was just kind of like a funny a thing and shock jocks. But like throughout 2018, they were engaged in a lot of like, I don't know if they were being manipulated, but they were, they were engaging in basically like movement discipline. And I think they engaged in that in a very poor way. Um, you know, the Ricky Vaughn situation is a really bad thing. And, you know, thank God he got arrested. What's, um, what is the, what is the status? Thank God Ricky Vaughn got arrested. So Ricky Vaughn posted some mean memes about Hillary Clinton and he got arrested. And Richard thinks that's great. So Ricky Vaughn at this point. Has that case gone to trial? Seems no. like it would have by now. But Ricky Vaughn was promoting Paul Nalen, then demanding um, that the movement attack Paul Nalen. Um, I mean, one thing that I noticed after one of my like... Whoa, so Ricky Vaughn changed his mind on some things. Now, that makes him a bad guy and it's good that he's been arrested. So Richard Spencer never changes his mind on anything that makes him a good guy. Defeats. When I stopped doing the college tour after Michigan was that my phone was just like lit up with endless like identity Europa and these types of people attacking me and playing the optics game and doing all sorts of stuff, just petty stuff to the level of like posting the video of me being punched and things like that. And TRS seems to have like this discipline where you can't, you'll never do that to Mike Enoch and Jesse Dunstan, but they'll. Wow. Who would have thought that if you appeal to the worst in people, and you don't go along with their agenda that they might turn on you, right? This is the equivalent of a girl living a, a quiet, normal life, and then she decides to become a porn star. Suddenly she has hundreds of thousands of fans, and shock and surprise, many of them turn out to be creepy, or it's like all the women who join the alt-right or the distant right, and they become e-celebs. And they able to make a lot of money and get a ton of attention. As Carla Liddell says, they'll get 500 times the, the amount of attention that a similarly talented man would have got. But it comes at a price that most of the people who are paying attention to you are creepy, right? I self-select for a certain kind of audience that is 
not, generally speaking, creepy, all right? I don't have bad experiences when I meet up with people from the audience. But if you conduct yourself the way that Richard Spencer was conducting himself, you are going to overwhelmingly attract a, a creepy audience, right? We get to select, in large part, our audience. And to a large degree, we're responsible for who listens to us. Have a certain party line where you'll do that to others. Now, at this point in my life, I genuinely don't care in the sense that I don't want to revive the alt-right. And the kind of movement that I am attempting to generate is extremely different and is not going to really have an online troll component. It might have a little bit of that. Not, no, well, no, it won't have any of that. It might have some people online and on Twitter, you know, posting ideas or memes or something like that. But it, it, that stuff... I... Richard Spencer has not fundamentally changed. So any, any movement and following he's developed is not going to be fundamentally different. Right? You'll know Richard Spencer's fundamentally changed when he starts taking responsibility for his mistakes and how his bad decisions hurt the lives of innocent people. That's when you know that he has the possibility of change. Right? When I started taking responsibility for how my bad behavior had hurt the lives of innocent people, that's when I opened up the possibility of a new way of living. I would say don't do what you're doing. I mean, just have some... <laughs> So this is uh, Richard's advice to TRS. Podcast where you talk about your shock jocks. <clears throat> All right. But I don't really trust them. I mean, I don't, I don't think they're going to do that, but I don't really trust them. So I, yeah, I, was, I never interviewed Ricky Vaughn. I did uh, DM with him. Which is asking the exercise. But Bowsman, I mean, look him up. Bowsman fled the country after January 6th. Um, he's, in, he's back in Russia now. Charles and Bowsman, there's no way for him to return. New York Times article. So this is serious. Well, and NJP has hosted a couple of events on his property, too. Yes. Definitely. Richard, I kind of want your comment on uh, on something. Um, I think, like, it kind of seems to me like Greg Conti doesn't really fit in NJP. Like, right now he's doing, like, podcasts with, uh, I don't know who, but they're, like, very intellectual. I, I just, he kind of, to me, kind of sticks out. I'm not, I don't think he's, leadership quality or, or necessarily or anything like that but he just doesn't and I, I i guess what i'm trying to ask is how do you think it's he got to that point i guess um well the problem with greg is that he he has an interesting personal story i mean he um he was an rotc and he got kicked out of rotc for like drawing a swastika on a chalkboard or something and he wants to be in the military he went to georgetown which is very impressive but he seems to have a kind of like complex or something like this where he just loves the movement and loves the kind of like anonymous hardcore neo-nazi aspect of it even though he himself is highly intelligent and speaks multiple languages and so on but he i mean when i was with him for a number of months i mean you couldn't get him off of like andrew england stuff and i, I just I, I think he has I, I don't understand it because I mean, I wanted to get away from that, but he sees the movement as like, this is the thing you've got to tap into the base and like integrate with the base and they are the key. And I just have the exact opposite conception of things. I think you should just dispense with these trolls and, right. I, yeah, right, and, and consciously alienate yourself from them. Because if you get close to them, they, I mean, my only personal experience with all of these people with like Eli Mosley, Jason Kessler or whatever, is that I just got burned and burns. Burns can heal, but I don't want to get burned again. Uh, Richard got burned, but he didn't burn anyone else, all right? Richard was only the victim here. He's making fun of victimology, 
but he was only a victim. He didn't burn anyone else. He's a good boy. He didn't do anything wrong. And so I'm just never going to like give any of these people or any that personality type the time of day. Greg just endlessly wants to give them that. I mean, the, the kind of curious thing, I mean, this is going back again, this is like ancient history at this point, but um, it was 2018 and he was doing this event that he organized and they had, re I, not to my knowledge, they, he and this weird guy named Kurt who has some like mysterious uh, military background and all of these guys were rebranding the conference I I under their own name. I can't remember what it was. So they were kind of like cucking me in a way. Like they were hosting this conference while creating an organization that I had no idea what they're doing. And he would always do this. He was always creating like security LLCs for him and Brian to like hire themselves out as security. It just, he, has, he creates all of these like perverse incentives and, and like, it's just really annoying. And um, so there was this meeting, it was perfectly fine. Um, I spoke, Kevin McDonald spoke, Enoch spoke. It was perfectly fine, if kind of boring at that point. And it was hyper securitized. So they were doing all of the security LARPing. And I was just telling them, I was like, guys, I think we should do some security, but you know, Charlottesville 3.0 is not gonna break out here at this you know, restaurant. I mean, this is just ridiculous. But they just love this like Tom Clancy novel LARPing. Right. So if you have a little bit more security than Richard Spencer deems appropriate, then you're Tom Clancy LARPing. But if you don't have enough security, then you're a loser. Right. So there are plenty of events that Richard was was appalled that there wasn't sufficient security. But if there's just a little bit too much security, then you're just a Tom Clancy LARPer. And, uh, you know, anyway, at some point, everyone was complaining and I just kind of overrode their dictates. I was like, look, you can you can let this person in. You can let them use their cell phones like, you know. And um, so anyway, I was in um, my girlfriend at the time had gotten very drunk and she and Greg's girlfriend were in like in this room together talking. And I went in there. I was talking to both of them. And this is after I had, I guess, kind of like dissed Greg. And he broke in to the room and claimed that I had was having some kind of three way with his girlfriend and my girlfriend. I was full. Everyone was fully clipped. And he opened up the door and started making all these claims and just saying, I remember him saying like, the movement is fed up with you. So this is all this just kind of like, oh, we need to do like, we're going to become conservatives and get rid of Spencer. And he does this like huge thing. Now, from what I've heard, he doesn't believe that I seduced his girlfriend and I didn't. And so he's kept up with this and then gone in this way. But yeah, I think he's slumming with TRS. I, I think he has more talent than that, but you can't get him to do anything. He, he wants to be with those people and he, that's how he sees this stuff working. So I, I just think he's kind of like a hopeless cause. And how did it, he won't did, admit when he's wrong. I mean, how did his girlfriend react when he started doing that? She started freaking out and she was also denying it, but she was like a desperate to maintain the relationship. And I think they still have a relationship, but I don't know. Um, so she was no help. But I think, I think all of that was just a charade. I mean, I, I think he would have done this anyway. He wants to be like part of the essay. The problem with a lot of these Nazis is that they don't, really know Nazi history. I mean, by 1934, all the TRS people had been assassinated by the SS and the Hitler regime. You know, I mean, you, you just can't go forward with that type. But anyway, I think if, if Greg had, I remember, yeah, I remember him reading these histories on the essay and things. I, I think if Greg has a fantasy, it would be like in the Freikorps. And that is just really unrealistic and it's not productive. I don't know how that could possibly like build something. And I, I so, you know, don't, and they just kind of 
decided to flip to the other side. And CNN was certainly a lot less partisan, you know, 20 to 25 years ago. And they're not part of, you know, a, a uh, higher level institution, which is kind of making these narratives. You know, they're not in academia, they're not doing whatever they're not. And so they're kind of making their own story and hearing narratives created for them by their peers. And many of these people are anonymous or have bad intentions or, or are legitimately crazy. And they just go down these rabbit holes. And so seemingly normal people who would not strike you as schizophrenic in the slightest bit, but when you actually ask them what they think, they're nuts. being on their phones it's just like and constantly getting notifications and the average like person being a political junkie whether they're left wing or right wing just constant yeah. like uh, anxiety you know I, I think that's that also uh, helps i mean it's kind of like activating the uh, spiteful mutants yeah and also there's also something else i mean like I, I was i heard this that when joe rogan releases a big podcast on spotify in terms of engagement it is the equivalent of taylor swift releasing a new album and so Joe Rogan does that, like. Right, there's an enormous audience for the moronic content that Joe Rogan pumps out. 20 to 50 times a year. And all of these normies are listening to this stuff. And it's this kind of like background entertainment. And also like Joe Rogan is my friend. So I don't know if there's an answer. Sure. Um, Andrew Joyce. Uh, wasn't there, I, I feel like there was a book that he was going to release. Um, yeah, you, I, I, I'm kind of not going to go forward with that for a number of reasons. I don't want to get the rest of our books banned, and it just doesn't strike me as worth it. He doesn't want to get banned. I like Andrew Joyce. I tried to get more involved with him, but kind of unsuccessfully. Um, and I like him personally, but I, I just, just the like going after the Jews constantly, I, I just kind of can't. I don't want to get the rest. So he prefers the way Mark Brahman goes after the Jews, but he doesn't like the the more brutal assault on the Jews by Andrew. The rest of our stuff banned due to that. I just don't think it's worth it because I, I feel like it's kind of been done. And the way I want to go after the Jews, so to speak, is through the stuff I'm doing with Mark Brahman. Right. So, yeah, I, I understand. Um, I was just... Uh... Curious because I remember he had said something um, a year or two ago uh, about. Uh... Yeah, I'm just too busy with other stuff. I, I just I don't know. I need to talk with him again. We haven't talked in a while. Um, I really want this in your understanding, but he's more of a symbol of it's given having a actual church. That's that. First off, uh, you know, you know, Hollywood worldview. Like, that's well, I mean, I I've said this, and I, I think some of this might strike people as controversial, but I, I would stand by it. Um, uh, I I hope that. First off, I hope that there's going to be a lot of publication with Apolloism. So the publications with Apolloism. So he wants Apolloism to be open to people of every race. So it's a kind of almost school. And I, 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 I want that to be happening. So in that sense, it's like available to everyone. And we have talked, we've, I've had discussions with people where we've talked about at some point having an actual church. And if we were to do that, well, I mean, it, it's, it's almost like contradictory to say church. Temple is probably a better word or... Um, service, um, community, maybe the best word. Um, I know this might strike you as controversial, but I do. I would not exclude anyone on the basis of race. Wow. You know, that's the call. He, and he didn't necessarily... I think, um, well, yeah, because I, I think... Go ahead, yeah. Well, I think, there, I think it is worthwhile, like, asking that. Because, you know, I agree. Like, even in... For, for instance, even in my, like, 20 years, and I think I've even talked about this, like, on the call a few, a few times ago. Like, 
20, when I was applying to schools, which I guess was almost like 25, it was in like 1997 or something like 25 years ago. Um, like, and I, I don't mean to say this like in a snobby manner or, or I, and I definitely don't mean to insult anyone, but like to, to go to Notre Dame, it was a good school, no doubt. But also that was kind of like the Catholic girl who got bees, <laughs> you know, like it was not that crazy. You know, it was like, oh, oh, that's cool. They've got a cool football team and it has a, you know, beautiful campus or whatever. Now you, I mean, it is so difficult for an average white person to get to Notre Dame. It's, it's like as difficult to get into Notre Dame as it would have been to get into Yale or something 25 years ago. I mean, my son is going to be at an extreme disadvantage, you know, when he is applying uh, 15, 14 years from now. And, you know, unless something changes, who knows? There's a thing in the Supreme Court, although I'm not sure if that would change much. But like the, we, we are victims on some level. There is a lot of hypocrisy among prosecutors. I mean, I, I will grant them something and it's worth talking about it. Uh, but I, I think like there is residu residual wealth in this country that does favor whites. Now, yeah, I think Indians now have higher incomes than whites and so on, but you know what I mean. And we live in a white supremacist world. You know, like all the institutions that have power are ultimately white institutions. And the UN, the Federal Reserve Bank, the World Bank, the NATO, uh, the United States government. And just think about Hollywood. I mean, Hollywood is, is just obviously a white institution. News media, white institution. Banking, white institution. Wall Street, white institution. Academia, white institution. <laughs> and I could go on. It's all white. I can't really name something that didn't Hollywood originate so from white. Europe. So we do live on a white supremacist planet. Totally white. It's funny, in the reading for today for Nietzsche, Nietzsche has this funny line where he's like, if a Martian was looking down on Earth, he would say, this is the ascetic planet. <laughs> it's kind of funny. But we live on a white supremacist planet. And so I, I think there's this kind of notion of like claiming you're the ultimate victim or something like that. It just, it's bizarre what? and off-putting to whites. I think that's one quality to it. I, I think there's probably some other aspects to it as well. Seen, you know, whatever, you know, he seems like a reasonable guy. No, and, I'm, I'm you know, I don't, I don't care. Like, you know, he's, he has some girlfriend who cucks him all the time because he's not like, she's talking you know, about that, destiny. I, 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 you know, I wouldn't hold it against him. It, you know, it's just like, it is what it is. Um, you know, I'm not going to be friends with him. Like, something you, but ultimately, whatever. <laughs> yeah, like I'll listen to him. It doesn't mean that he's wrong. I, I, I wouldn't have been friends with him anyway. So who cares? You should do a stream with him. See if you have. I should good bang his wife. Is what I should do. <laughs> <laughs> see, I, I, well, say, I think he'd be down for both of those. <laughs> fuck a stream. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, I, I should do that. I should come up with a topic for him. Yeah, Are you in contact with, with him? Bang what, his were wife. School getting beaten to death by blacks. I mean, I'm not saying less horrified by like some salacious tale, which is ultimately anecdotal about like a girl getting killed by illegal immigrants or like a guy in high school getting beaten to death by blacks. I mean, I'm not saying what, who, what, hold on. Is that, do you guys hear that? Oh, that's my phone. Okay. Do you guys hear that sound? It's like a, it's like a, a notification. I'm getting these um, rain notifications. But anyway, sorry about that. Um, I am even le less horrified by these like anecdotal tales of horror because they are ultimately anecdotal. Even, even if they are real things that, that might be very tragic and are, are worth discussing. I, I'm not like motivated by like, can you believe this white girl got raped? You know, I mean, that shit happens. And yeah, um, I don't understand what you're going to do about it. Like deport all blacks or something. I mean, that, that seems pretty uh, uh, outlandish. But um, I, I'm much more concerned about like just the mundane ways that it is very difficult for my white children to advance in institutions. It's much more difficult than it was even when I was a young person. You know, like you want to be a lawyer in a big city or something like they are going to, you know, you're not going to be a diversity hire. Like it's going to be difficult. You want to get into these good schools. You want to, you know, so on and so forth. So 
you know, I'm kind of more shocked by that kind of structural aspect of it, um, or more outraged by it, rather. So, so do I think Richard Spence is compromised? I don't think he's any more compromised than the average person. I, I think Richard is someone who, who's very talented at making live streams and podcasts. He is a performer. He's a contrarian. He loves coming out with spicy hot takes, and that's who he is, right? Once you put people in their appropriate genre, then uh, then they don't need to upset you anymore. There's a term that I introduced in Rethinking Narcissism to describe an aspect of the way people who are extremely narcissistic might cope with their discomfort of being vulnerable or depending on others in healthy ways. If you remember from my previous videos, I talk about attachment insecurity. Briefly, attachment insecurity, again, is a difficulty turning to people with especially vulnerable feelings with an expectation that you will be safe in another person's hands, that you can turn to them with for mutual care and comfort. And part of that vulnerability includes asking for things. The more narcissistic somebody is, the less comfortable they are putting themselves in a position of hearing no, of being rigid. That's that's me. I mean, that's how I spent my life. Instead of being vulnerable with people, I would look for ways to try to show that I was superior to other people. It did not make for a life that worked. Rejected. It's precisely because of that vulnerability that they have to feeling like somehow they're diminished or they're not good enough. If there's any kind of disagreement or disconnect or rejection, even a small rejection of not wanting to do what it is that they have in mind or what it is they expect. What this leads to is a predictable tell. And there are a number of tells, hopefully I'll do a number of videos covering all of them, but this is a particular tell early on that you might be dealing with somebody who's a higher up on the narcissism spectrum, who is more in the extreme range, whether they are covertly or vulnerably narcissistic or whether they are grandiose, in other words, overt or extroverted narcissists. And the way stealth control works is that if I am truly unwilling to ever put myself in a position of putting myself out there and depending on someone and then it not going well, then one way to manage that is to just arrange experience and arrange events to get my needs met, to make sure that my feelings are attended to in the way that I want. This is what stealth control is. And if you want a classic example, and the reason it overlaps with love bombing, if you want. All right, this is the, this accounts for most live streamers, All right? Why a live stream is by and large so toxic, All right? Why can't they sustain relationships? Because they're, they're so involved in live streaming because this is a way that they can have stealth control and they can run away from their own vulnerability and instead devote their efforts to show how they're superior to everyone else, how they have the, the sharper perspective, how you know, they are the better pundit, right? This is what he's talking about here is in large part the live stream of personality. This, this accounts for why so many live streamers are dysfunctional. I understand that as well is one of my clients years ago had a relationship uh, that was starting to go sour very quickly in large ways and small ways. But one of the things that happened early on and continued to happen was a man who would show up at the last minute with concert tickets or plans for dinner basically just sweep my client off her feet, which is fun. That is obviously a lot of fun and it feels great to have that experience. It happened a lot. And that kind of raised a red flag for me because what I noticed was that there were no times where she maybe asked for something or said that she would like to do something and that came to fruition. It was always him showing up with these ideas, grand adventures, going on a long bike ride or a hike in the country, all great stuff. But there wasn't really any room for her preferences or her perspective or her needs in the midst of all that fun. This is stealth control. And the reason, right? Do you fear putting a vulnerable part of yourself in someone else's hands? Do you, do you have uh, John Bobbitt like fear? Do you think that you know your 
your, your friend, your partner is going to turn into Lorena Bobbitt and just chop you up, right? This is what drives toxic live streaming. I don't want to deal with my loneliness. I don't want to deal with my anxiety. I don't want to deal with my inferiority. So let me tell you what you need to do, right? Let me give you life advice, right? So a person needs to feel special, needs admiration intensely to the degree that they feel like they can't rely on other people, right? So am I really interested in what you want or am I just intermittently love bombing you with hate porn, like giving you intermittent bursts of Tucker Carlson and other forms of hate porn just to keep you around? Like, do I truly care about you or am I just using you for my own narcissistic, you know, grandiosity and need for attention? Do you feel, press one if you feel like I truly care about you, or am I just doling out little bits of hate porn to keep you around? It is a version of control is because you're never being asked what you want. And if your partner is engaging in this, especially early on, they're not really asking for anything. Again, they're just making it happen. That's pretty typical of a more extroverted or outgoing, more charismatic person with extreme narcissism in a covert variety. Yeah, am I speaking myself? Absolutely. I have definite narcissistic uh, tendencies. Takes one to know one. Has Ford ever been swept off his feet by men? I have been captivated by men, not not sexually, not romantically, but uh, when I, when I meet you know fascinating, powerful, uh, prestigious you know men who have so many ideas and perspectives I never thought of, right? I, I find that stimulating, right? I rely on my relationships with other people to power me through life. That's my primary source of energy is other people, primarily other men, right? So my friendships with other men is the prime burning core of my life. That's my primary source of energy, is my primary source of enthusiasm, is my primary source of joy, right? Yeah, from my friendships with other men. And some of them are brilliant. Some of them are at times captivating. Some of them have all sorts of insights into life that I've never thought of. They often have all sorts of skills, and, and wisdom that, that I don't have. So yeah, my male friends are absolutely essential for my well-being. It's my primary source of inspiration, energy, power, fun, joy, happiness. Variety. These are people who might never ask for anything directly either, but they have problems that blow up. They need rescuing, things fall apart. And this can happen in people who have trauma and they become overwhelmed and they don't really know what to do. They can have a similar experience, but the difference between somebody who say has complex PTSD or even somebody with borderline organization is that what happens when somebody is vulnerably narcissistic and they do this, what they're looking for is special attention. If you've ever encountered with somebody who has a lot of trauma, it's very conflicted where they don't necessarily even want you to pitch in. It's all very reluctant. Whereas somebody who is vulnerably narcissistic, they love it if you jump in and try to make things better when they don't have to ask. In both of these instances, the person is able to get their needs met and able to have special attention without ever asking for it at all. That is what self-control is. If you want to test out whether or not this is what's happening, simple way to do it when you're in the more fun variety of the being swept off the feet, kind of like love bombing, to determine if it is the kind of love bombing or idealization, which is actually stealth control, is to start to make plans of your own, make a suggestion to say that I would really like to check out this awesome new restaurant. I would love to be able to go with you. I think we would enjoy it together. And if each time you do that, the person introduces reasons, your date introduces reasons they can't, they're too tired, it's too far.
Okay, so here's a, another bloke who's similarly narcissistic but is channeling things in a productive direction. This is Rob Weiss, who's a major figure in the sex addiction world. Here's talking about diagnosis and treatment of sexual addiction in the digital age. Who can I flirt with? Who can I get a card from? Who can I depend on to, to meet up with me later? It's about intrigue, um, excite, uh, uh, really anything that will feed adrenaline, a rush of adrenaline, endorphins, dopamine, and all that nice, uh, all those nice internal drugs that um, process addicts use to get high. Uh, sex addicts will push boundaries. They view, view no as a challenge. Um, we often have professionals who are in treatment, uh, physicians, attorneys, um, therapists who um, are crossing boundaries. I'll have a doctor, for example, who, let's say he's a, pedi a pediatric doctor and he's treating someone's child, but having sex with a mother and saying, well, I'm not having sex with my patient. You know, that kind of pushing boundaries where they can justify it to themselves. They have multiple affairs, either one after another, or often uh, they'll be having an affair and they'll be seeing a prostitute and they'll stop off. Um, and see an old girlfriend uh, on their way home. So they have multiple things going on. They're kind of juggling sexual and romantic experiences all at the same time. Um, they're more and more using their smartphones for hookups, using apps, and we'll talk about that. Um, they're sexting. Uh, Anthony Weiner would be the most famous case of that. They're abusing social networks. They're engaged in virtual sexuality because there are this virtual is from sexual 2013. worlds now. Um, as I said, they cross professional boundaries. And most of all, they live a double life. You know, they, sex addicts, by the way, sex addicts are great in treatment if they're not also drug addicts because they're so uh, awake. You know, my clients don't take three weeks to clear before they're ready for treatment. They're already living three lives. You know, I just have to get them down to one that has integrity where everything is talked about, and they are much better really quickly. Um, they're not better in the initial wounding that they had. That's a long-term psychotherapeutic issue. But in terms of their shame, their self-hatred, that addictive cycle, this, the isolation they're living in, I mean, all that gets lifted. He's absolutely right in my experience. I got better quickly, right? Not, not in the deepest sense, but my life immediately improved in 2011 when I started 12-stepping for sex and love addiction. In treatment, they become a lot more available and a lot more present pretty quickly. Um, I did want to say something, by the way, about Anthony Weiner really quickly. I've not met him, nor have I assessed him, but I thought it was interesting in the media over the summer where this man was just brutally attacked again. And what was he attacked for? He was attacked because it came out that he had continued sexting women after he'd lost his congressional seat. And everyone said, why wouldn't somebody who's had those kind of consequences stop that behavior? I mean, what kind of crazy is he? But if you treat addicts, you understand that someone who gets a DUI doesn't stop drinking that night. You know, someone who is a gambling addict doesn't lose their kid's college fund and say, oh, I get it, I need to stop. They just go take out a loan. So it can take a while for people, even in the most, who's had the most severe consequences, to stop their behavior. Because the only thing the consequences does is push, is push someone into crisis and hopefully into treatment if they're, if they're lucky. If they don't only get into crisis, then they might continue to engage in the behavior because that's their primary means of coping. So it made perfect sense to me that this guy would continue to do it after he'd lost his position because that's how he copes. What else is he going to do? His wife has left him. He has no job. He's sitting around his apartment by himself. Why wouldn't he get online and sex to women? I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. But I can understand to someone who doesn't understand addiction that that wouldn't make sense. You would think, because most people have a consequence, like the drinking or drugs, or, and they say, oh my gosh, look at this consequence. I don't want to do this anymore, unless you're an addict, in which case you keep doing it. And, um, and I would say that. And the chat says, bring back the old guests. Well, I, I sent out an invite to about 20 plus people, including the old the old staples from the show so overwhelmingly pro-social productive people have come to realize how dangerous it is to live stream how, how dangerous it is to their well-being they become much more uh, selective and it's it's a lot harder to get guests when i don't want to just book freaks so it used to allow just anyone to come on the show but after a while I got to the point now where 99% of people who want to come on the show, I don't want them on the show because there's something deeply disturbed about them. That is probably what happened in New York uh, uh, a couple of years ago, but I'm just guessing. 
All right, so how much sex equals addiction? I mean, let's get down to the good stuff. I mean, like, how much sex do you have to have to be a sex addict? And my question to you would be, well, how many drinks makes an alcoholic? Or how much money do you have to spend to be a compulsive gambler? Or how many meals do you have to eat to have an eating disorder? And you're like, okay, okay, okay. But, but all right, Rob, fine. But what about what kind of sex you have? I mean, surely you can define it by what kind of sex you have. You know, and I would say to you, well, what kind of alcohol means you're an alcoholic? Is it vodka or wine? What kind of gambling means you have a gambling disorder? Is it blackjack or craps? Because the reality is that we don't define addiction quantitatively. We define it qualitatively. How is this behavior or substance affecting the quality of this person's life, their functionality? Are they losing their ability to function effectively with their family, with their spouse, with their job, with their day-to-day -day life because of this behavior or uh, substance or both? And that's how we look at sex addiction in the same way as we look at all the other addictions. So is sexual addiction a mental health diagnosis? Does it count? Well, in the DSM-3, it did. There was a descriptor under sexual disorders NOS called sexual addiction. And you could say someone had sexual addiction, and it was a DSM diagnosis. And then right around 1990, and the DSM-4 came out, uh, it was taken out. And I always find that really cool and interesting, because what happened in the early 90s to our culture? What showed up that made the most major change we've seen in our entire existence <laughs> since nuclear war? The internet. So just as people were lining up and getting caught up, some people in online porn and online hooking up, and I started to have what had started in 95 to be a trickle, but by 98 was a torrent of people coming into treatment, just as we evolved the technology to make intensely pleasurable experiences that much more accessible, that much more immediate, um, it was taken out of the DSM, which I think is just interesting. And then it uh, is no longer being considered for the DSM-5. Um, I do recommend, if you're really interested in the topic, go to the APA website and download the, uh, the paper written about hypersexual disorder, which was the title of it. A man by the name of Marty Kafka, who's an MD at Harvard, wrote the uh, proposed diagnosis. He knew that addiction would never fly because, as you all know, the word addiction no longer exists in the DSM period. Everybody knows that, right? The DSM-5 no longer has the word addiction in it. So certainly sex addiction wasn't going to fly. Um, so he looked at hypersexual disorder because he, he, being a doctor, thought, well, you get kind of hyperthyroidism, hypothyroidism. You know, doctors all understand hyper and hypo, so we'll call it that. So just because something doesn't make it to the DSM doesn't mean that it's not real, right? Just because a jury r rules on something doesn't mean that they're right, right? O.J. Simpson is not an innocent man wrongly accused of a double murder simply because a, a jury ruled that way. So he, he's making the larger point that most of our standards about what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong are socially determined. And frequently what is socially determined is wrong. And quite honestly, I don't care what you call it. You can call it sexual compulsion, you can call it sexual addiction, you can call it hypersexuality. I don't care. I just know that I have this steady stream of people coming in with a pretty predictable um, pattern of symptoms and behavior that is causing a pretty particular pattern of consequences. And I also know that if you provide a certain kind of treatment that that behavior will dissipate, um, uh, reduce, or be eliminated. So when people decide what they want to call it, you know, maybe I'll be on the planet, maybe Pat Carnes will be on the planet, I don't know. But we clearly have an issue, and by the way, the committee for sexual disorders is, uh, para, parasexual disorders is very aware that there is a problem. They're very aware of the research. Um, the, why did not make the DSM? Okay, so this is a guy who loves talking. This is a guy who's at least as narcissistic as I am. He's simply channeling his narcissism to situations where it's appropriate. He's doing good with his narcissism, just like I try to do good with my narcissistic tendencies. DSM, it's politics, pure and simple. There is no political will within the APA to say that consensual sexual behavior can be problematic for some people. There's no, no one coming forward saying, we got to have that diagnosis. You know, there's, it's just not an area that they want to dip their toes into because if they do, then all the sexual offender people say, oh, well, that means all our offenders are just going to want to reduce their sentences by saying they're addicts, and they're absolutely right. Because if you look at Ariel Castro this summer, the, uh, thank you, Machine, for that. Um, 
I know you're not paying attention to it, but I'm hearing that. Um, Ariel Castro, the guy who, the offender who perpetrated those women, and you know, he said in court, I'm a cold-blooded sex addict. Well, that made me really mad. I wrote like four blogs on that one. Because I don't know whether he's a sex addict or not, but that's not addictive behavior. That's, uh, that's predatory offending, you know, very different. He looked at himself, and that is the fear of the offender community, that predators will say, oh, I'm just a sex addict. I just look at porn and masturbate, you know, and that they'll get off their sentence. So there's a lot of pressure from the offender community not to diagnose this. And at the other end are the sex therapy community, is the sex therapy community, which comes out of the sexual liberalism of the 70s and 80s, which basically said, we don't pathologize anybody's sexuality as long as it's consensual. So, you know, whatever people want to do is okay. And because homosexuality and fetishes and other alternative forms of sexuality were so heavily um, moralized and legally controlled in the 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and leading up to that time, there's a lot of issues with the idea of pathologizing sexuality when it could be considered healthy. So the APA has no interest in either end of the sexual continuum for people to have this diagnosis. So this guy's probably the second most powerful person in the sex addiction business uh, beneath Patrick Kahn's who's kind of the inventor of sex addiction therapy. In the DSM, and we don't have one. Um, there's a lot of other reasons for it, like insurance and drugs and uh, all that kind of stuff. But um, the reality is, is I'm not sure when we're going to have a diagnosis. Um, but I'm just going to keep treat treating people as they walk in and ask for help. Um, the general public seems to have accepted this term, sex addiction. And by the way, whatever your beliefs are, I would not talk something, I would strongly discourage you from talking someone out of the idea that they have the problem if they really do engage in compulsive and addictive sexuality, even if you don't believe in it. And the reason to not talk someone out of it is because it gives them hope. When you give someone a diagnosis and you tell them, if you go to meetings, if you do this, if you do that, you might get better. That gives them a lot of hope. Yeah, hope is important. I remember I was bedridden in my 20s and a year along, my uncle sent me an article from some Australian publication with, with the, the descriptor chronic fatigue syndrome. And just getting that diagnosis, right, it helped me make my way through life. It, it, I find it tremendously calming when I can get a name or a description for something that's bothering me. So when I heard the phrase mother hunger about a month ago, that, that deeply spoke to me. I, I love getting that kind of clarity. And it doesn't even matter if, if the term and the concept is empirically true. Sometimes just, just the hope and the relief that comes from, from that description serves somebody. Hope. And when you say that doesn't exist, well, then what does that mean? I mean, what does it mean when you don't have a diagnosis? And in my mind, that's when you get... Would later life chronic fatigue syndrome cure sex addiction? Did not for me. Even when I was in the throes of sex addiction, basically bedridden, I was still able to have sex three times a day. Moral judgment. That's when you get religious abuse. That's when you get misdiagnosis or misdiagnosis with medication. And I want you to remember what alcoholism was, those of you who are old enough to remember, because I remember watching TV in the 70s or the, well, the late 60s, really, and I would sit and, with my dad, and we would watch TV, we'd watch like Mannix and a Wife 5 and inevitably there'd be some alcoholic on television, you know, in the show. And what was an alcoholic? Alcoholic was a man lying in the gutter in a raincoat, unshaven, no job, no family, in the rain, with a bottle, passed out in the gutter. And my dad would look up at the TV and say, oh, well, that's a bum, because that's what alcoholics were, because there was no diagnosis for alcoholism up until, well, it was in, in how many? Okay, that's going to do it for tonight. Take care. Bye-bye.